Great to see everyone. Gosh, all at once. <laughs> yeah. Um, welcome to everyone, to um, everyone that's listening, wherever you're listening from. Uh, friends in England, in Hawaii, in Chicago, and Alpine, Madison and elsewhere. Um, I'm Ann Lipscomb, and we have a really uh, a treat this morning. Uh, one of our Sangha members, Mason McClay, is um, going to join us, and we're going to do a question-answer after a little introduction about his work as a neuroscientist and a researcher and contemplative practice or Zen and how those, those things interact and um, affect one another. So there'll be a small talk introduction and I get to ask the first question and then we'll open it up for people to um, ask questions, raise their hands, Sandra will be our monitor will be um, calling on people for questions for Mason. And um, we won't have breakout groups, but we'll just continue on with questions. And like I told Mason, if nobody else has questions, I have a million, so no problem. But um, so without further ado, um, I'll introduce Mason McClay and um, start out with kind of a many way seeking mind talk. If you could tell us, Mason, what um, what brought you to contemplative practice? What how did that journey start? I th I think you're muted, Mason. Mm -hmm. You're still muted. Sandra, can you unmute Mason? Let me unmute him. I already unmute him, so is he? There we go. There we go. No. It's his system. It's his computer. It's still not working, Mason. Sorry. You got to fiddle. No. Come back again, go away, come back again. Let's see. So while he's gone, he's actually, I think this is the last day he's here in Austin. He's getting ready to go to California to do his advanced degree. Maybe we can unmute all for a second, Sandra. Mm -hmm. 
I guess, um, I guess mute. Can you hear me? Yay, you're, you're like in a well somewhere. All right. Okay. Yay. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. That was so strange. Uh, <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? The only thing I will ask if everybody can mute themselves that I, the ones that I unmute. So we can. Yeah, so Kim and Nancy, I guess, and Kibana need to mute themselves if they can. Yeah, great. Okay. Great. Uh, thank you so much. Um, yeah. Sorry about that little delay. Um, so I guess to answer your question, um, I, I used to think that my introduction to contemplative practice was sort of unconventional. Um, but after moving to Austin and just meeting more people really across the South, I began to realize a lot of people had somewhat similar experiences uh, to me. Um, basically, when I was around 14 or 15, I was dealing with quite a bit of issues, including significant drug abuse. Um, and I was expelled from high school. It was actually someone, the father of someone I was tutoring, introduced me to a particular type of practice um, that was very intensely related to uh, sort of offshoots of different contemporary Hindu practices that had made their way to the Midwest. Um, and I began going to those community practices with him and just immediately got swooped up into it. Um, it gave me a perfect outlet to begin to deconstruct the problems I was having and reorient myself toward my relationships in my life. Um, and it ultimately culminated in me traveling to India when I was 16 and staying in a, a temple to study with the monks of this particular tradition for a few months. Um, and then teaching different facets of this particular tradition throughout the Midwest um, in my teenage years. Um, I quickly, well, over time I began to realize that there were some issues with how the particular tradition was manifesting in the community and there were a lot of issues with control. Um, because I was younger, I wasn't necessarily able to see how those things were being uh, abused uh, until later. Um, so when I left to go to college and began studying neuroscience, which I knew I wanted to study, it, a lot of the uh, experiences I had through this contemplative practice began opening me up to all the sorts of radical but really simple states of consciousness. And I just knew that I wanted to try to understand those through uh, what I thought would be an appropriate lens, which was in my mind neuroscience uh, and to some degree still is. And <laughs> obviously that's what I'm doing. <laughs> Um, so I went to college and my research advisor, who I met right off the bat, happened to be um, the head of in a program at my college called the Contemplative Studies Initiative. And he was a trained uh, Zen teacher. Um, so I pretty quickly began studying Zen in somewhat an informal way through him. Um, but I did end up going to Japan with him for about two months um, to study mostly at some Rinzai temples and nothing too in-depth. It was mostly like a cursory look of some of the, uh, the interaction between science and Zen um, and how those things were actually brought to bear and contemporary discourse. Um, so that led me to, I, I suppose a part of this whole, this whole trajectory for me was beginning to uh, deconstruct the source of aversions I built when mm -hmm. I was younger, um, when I was in that very rigorous community um, and sort of taken advantage of. So I had to separate myself from more of a theological context pretty radically mm -hmm. and sort of embed a lot of what I had learned within philosophy and neuroscience 
and sort of a broader outlook. So around that time, that's when I graduated college and I came to Austin and joined Ahumada and as much as possible began taking uh, my, my Zen studies a bit more seriously. <laughs> um, sort of like coming full circle with mm. the questions I don't know could be answered through neuroscience um, are better left to just be experienced. And that's that. Um, yeah. And I suppose that's where I am at, at the present moment. Yeah, that's great. I guess I wanted to mention to people too that you're a poet and a digital and visual artist. And so I think that informs your broader perspective that you were talking about. Yeah. So a basic question about neuroscience, what's the broad question Mm-hmm. that either neuroscience or you particularly in neuroscience are trying to answer? So that's, that's a great question. And it's something I'm going to try to outline um, a little bit later, but maybe it's good to just talk about it now. One of the biggest projects in, in especially in neuroscience, especially cognitive neuroscience, where you're working with multiple ontologies, what I mean by that is you're not just looking at, oh, what does the brain do? You need to know what is what process are we interested in? And what does that mean in terms of people's experience? Mm-hmm. And then what does that mean in terms of people's behavior? Mm-hmm. And what are the outcomes of all of those correlates? Um, and how, how do we actually measure those things? So a huge project of neuroscience in general is this issue of Uh, what's considered to be construct validity. Mm. It's this idea that you might have a construct in mind, you might have a certain thing you want to study, um, but you can only study that thing as well as you have measurements for it, right? So if you want to ask the question of, uh, oh, what's happening in the brain when people are engaged in mindfulness? Well, you have to have an idea of what mindfulness is which is going to be based off of your a priori assumptions, right? Um, but then that's also going to be confounded by what you can actually measure. So if you just tell someone, oh, well, tell me how mindful you are while you're you know, in, in a brain scanner, that's going to be confounded by their own ideas of mindfulness. But if you develop like a scale where you ask them to answer different questions about their experience of mindfulness, that's going to depend on the questions you come up with which are gonna be biased toward your own theory of mindfulness. So in general, a lot of the early uh, mindfulness research um, in in neuroscience came from a well-being or wellness perspective. Um, So just trying to understand, you know, if we take complete novices and then we take expert meditators from Tibet with over like 30,000 hours of meditation experience, and we just compare their health outcomes Um, We ask them to engage in something like a metta or loving kindness meditation. Uh, How do their brains differ? So that was like a really easy way at first for neuroscientists to compare just really basic things about what mindfulness might be doing and what the outcomes of mindfulness or meditation are. And uh, a lot of that early work was just showing some things that were pretty expected and then some things were that were like completely counterintuitive. So something that we're totally expected is, you know, people who have, who are expert meditators are good at doing that. You know, like they, they're able to sit and (laughs) behaviorally, they're able to actually engage in the practice. Um, However, one thing that was totally unexpected is a lot of the neural results that compared expert meditators to novices were a bit counterintuitive where you had uh, these circuits of the brain, especially in the prefrontal cortex, that are known to engage in like high regulatory uh, behaviors or be correlated with regulatory behaviors, like orienting your attention toward things, um, regulating your emotional responses to fearful stimuli and things of that sort. They were actually, the activity of those regions and those circuits was actually higher in the novices than in the expert meditators. And so, yeah, so that sort of threw a wrench in a lot of the early meditation work. Uh, 
just saw my video was yeah. Oh yeah, hi. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't realize my video was uh, on my phone. Right. Um, so that, that threw a, quite a big wrench in the early work. However, uh, a lot of people began to realize that perhaps what's happening um, with the expert meditators is they have an orientation of acceptance, right? And there's still a bit of a, you know, a, a tension and, and a, a debate. You can make different predictions based off different theories you have where, you know, one theory might be, oh, the expert meditators have practiced regulation so much that their brains have just gotten used to that. They can immediately regulate. There is so much neuroplasticity that they don't have to engage in those same particular circuits in mm -hmm. order to have the emotional regulation. So one theory might suggest that it is something that they carry with them as they go. They're just in a hyper-regulated state. However, other theories might suggest that they aren't really regulating at all. And uh, the difference comes with how they appraise their experience after the fact. Um, and actually there's some recent research that supports the second hypothesis. Um, it's actually some work using pain. Uh, so if you shock monks or expert meditators and then shock novice meditators, uh, the salience networks that detect pain, like the insula, which like represents body arousal, um, is actually higher. The activity of that region is, is higher in the expert meditators. However, the baseline activity before the pain occurs, even when they know it's going to happen, so this like anticipatory reaction to the pain, um, is actually much lower in the expert meditators. So you might say, I'm going to jump in. So you might say what the, um, the novice meditators are more engaged in control of what yeah. they experience. Mm -hmm. Right. And the expert less control, more watching, more mm -hmm. observation, more curiosity. But also right. if they have greater um activity with a painful stimulus mm -hmm. then maybe more actually i don't know paying attention more actually engaged mm, yeah. with what's happening but not yeah. so, but let go of that not so like a long holdover okay story mm -hmm. about what did that mean and oh my god right. i can get out of here sort of thing right and in fact that is what they find uh they find that you know, there's a process of habituation. So how long does it take you to get used to the pain? And then the expert meditators, they habituate much more rapidly than the novices. So mm -hmm. I think that honestly, like, this is the, the crazy thing is, you know, the people doing this research aren't even necessarily coming up with these interpretations, like what you just proposed. Um, but that's, I think, a really valid interpretation of what might be happening. And so there needs to be better discourse. <laughs> between uh, you know, people actually practicing and people trying to do the science. Yeah. That's sort of a roundabout answer to your... No, that's good because that's sort of what the teaching would imply, the teaching mm -hmm. of Ben, the teaching of contemplative practice, that your, your awareness is more open and less attached. Right. Yeah. And yeah. You're, I know I've heard Peg and other teachers say, the way you can tell an experienced meditator is how long it takes them to turn or drop the thing that just happened and go on to the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. There's one theoretical model proposed by Richard Davidson, who some people in the Sangha might be familiar with. He's like one of the most famous neuroscientists because he is the most cited neuroscientist. And he happens to, have like a, a very lasting interest in mindfulness practice since the late nineties. Um, and in his model, which, which he proposed back in like 2010 or so um, is sort of a reorientation model where you engage in regulation, your mind drifts, and then you reorient, you know, pretty fairly simple, but because of issues with construct validity and measurement, it actually was well beyond any other, what I would call like a univariate or a very linear model 
um, that isn't necessarily proposing a, this model's proposing a more of an iterative circular process, whereas other models weren't. Um, but even then, that's that's only one little feature of what you just yeah. <laughs> what you just introduced. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of what I'm interested in is how does the science currently mm -hmm. um, equate with the teachings? What's been said? What's going to happen? Right. Yeah. So that that's really interesting. And I know last week, last Sunday. Chris um, gave a wonderful talk about um, the nature of time and the nature of understanding, mm -hmm. what it means to understand something and how we do that, and talked a lot about um, what you're just saying, that you it depends on how you can measure, it depends on your a priori um, assumptions. Mm -hmm. And so that, that changes. Do you think... Yeah. Do you think our minds actually change when the ability to our brains actually change when your ability to um, apprehend a new possibility or or get a new measuring device? So do you mean the the brains of meditators when they apprehend just in general for people if you kind of right. open up your experience yeah, yeah. You know, something happens, like you get right. a new measurement instrument or a new telescope or a new microphone. Oh, I see. Um, or you yeah, have. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, these are all like, <laughs> these are all empirical questions that like you can't say so for sure unless you have the data. But I mean, our brains are always changing. So I'd imagine that when you develop a new measurement device that especially something like you know like a telescope like what was a telescope like to 16th century italian that probably like completely changed galileo's brain uh, you know, compared to the the you know a normal italian even if you controlled or compared him to another you know maverick uh astrologer or physicist um, i'm sure you would have seen differences just because he was looking through a a lens every night yeah let him, like reappraise it, especially with something like that what something i've been really interested in um since i began meditation practice and one of the first avenues i i found that i think connected meditation and meditation research um is this whole field of emotion regulation mm. um and emotion regulation in general uh is sort of uh one of those like dual model systems where you have people mainly studying reappraisal, which is when you like develop a, a sort of explanation for something that you're experiencing and suppression, which is a form of re regulation where you just suppress what you're experiencing. Mm. Suppression is known to be correlated with all sorts of poor health outcomes, Interesting. including heart failure. Wow. So people who suppress are more likely to have heart attacks, you know, 40 years later in life. Um, whereas reappraisal is correlated with a lot of <clears throat> more healthy behaviors and also reduced psychopathology and reduced risk of all sorts of health outcomes. And uh, the thing is, though, reappraisal can mean so many different things. Huh. Um, there are some people who are actually trying to break down what reappraisal is. And one of the big ones is temporal and distal reappraisal. So uh, when people situate themselves in a much broader temporal context. A bigger picture. Yeah. Or in Galileo's case, seeing that the earth is a speck, you know, when in comparison to all the stars, right. even in the immediate vicinity of what the tel telescope can see, um, that, that must have altered how he reappraises, you know, day-to-day -day issues in his life. Rest of his experience, yeah. Yeah, I'd be my guess at least. Yeah, well, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold off on my burning question and open it up. Cool. Or um, and Sandra's gonna call on people if if this has provoked questions, and if not, I'll ask mine. Yeah. So, can... King is, has a question, let me just 
Yeah. Um, uh, so how can this help us? What I'm thinking of is I know there's a device for piano, for deaf piano tuners where they can tune a piano because this device will tell them what note actually when they hit the key, what note they're hearing and then they can move. So how can we, this is, seems like a lot of this is after the fact that you're mm -hmm. talking about. Yeah. You know, what does the expert meditator do and so mm -hmm. forth? But are there any means like devices, for example, mm -hmm. that you could use to see if you're meditating or not? Uh, Whatever yeah. that means. Right. What is yeah. it? So, uh, no, that's a great question. I mean, I was actually having a, a conversation with my old research advisor um, from Center College where I went to undergrad and uh, I was telling him about how we were going to do this and he was like, yeah, you know, it's common that different uh, Buddhist communities are really interested in the science, but, you know, there's always the further question of what is it actually, how does it go beyond the sutras and the, the theology and the philosophy of the practice itself? And that's definitely something where it's like, there, I'll get to like an actual practical application in a second, but um, I do think what, you know, going back to what I, had mentioned earlier, even being able to map the different forms of understanding of, you know, Dogen's idea of sunyata and like a neuroscientist's idea of like radical metacognition or meta-awareness, um, I think is, can be very powerful for theoretical reasons and to just understand really basic features of consciousness. But to actually get to a practical application, uh, neurofeedback is actually, and biofeedback are um, two different methods that have been used to train people uh, to handle a lot of different adverse physiological reactions um, to day-to-day -day information and contexts. Um, so probably a good example of this is people with PTSD um, can be trained uh, to essentially observe even their heart rate and be able to regulate their the variability in their peak to peak heart intervals, which is correlated with sympathetic activation, which is essentially your fight or flight response. So you can hook people up to a machine that actually tells them what their uh, sympathetic arousal looks like. You might just correlate uh, their sympathetic arousal with like a picture of a thermometer. And let's say when a thermometer hits 100, that means their sympathetic arousal is low but they might not even know that. So it's kind of interesting is you can implicitly train people to actually have lower adverse reactions um, or to have a better tonic, more healthy tonic uh, physiological state. And that could be applied to meditation as well. There are a few people who have done this. Um, there are a few studies that came out recently at the University of California at San Francisco um, that have applied neurofeedback to novice meditators in particular students. Um, but a lot of really cool work is actually being done at UT. Um, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy. Uh, I, we actually did a study using some of this technology. Um, but essentially there's something called, not to get too uh, terminological, but uh, it's called multivariate pattern analysis. This idea that you can track, brain activity using a machine learning algorithm. Mm. So let's say that, let's say that I train you to remember a series of words in one list. And then I train you to remember a series of words in another list. And then the next day I bring you back. And let's say I, I had you in like a brain scanner, fMRI the whole time. The next day I bring you back and I try to get you to remember the lists. The idea is that your brain activity that was similar to list one, if that is active in your brain before I start telling you to remember different words from the lists, you're more likely to remember the list one words. Hmm. So <clears throat> some way that this might be relevant to meditation practice is especially people who might have um, very clear psychopathologies where you can disentangle or dissociate um, like an adverse reaction 
um, like in a fear task and then a mindfulness uh, task afterwards. Um, you might be able to train them on both tasks and then present them with ambiguous information later on. <clears throat> and perhaps you could even present them with uh, similarly like a thermometer that actually changes based off of how much mindfulness neural context that their brain is engaged in. Mm. And if maybe if you uh, give them neurofeedback to make their brain more mindfulnessy, <laughs> then they would be uh, more likely to appraise the new information through uh, you know a, a mindfulness context. So that's one way that you could potentially train people, um, especially people with psychopathologies. Yeah. Does it answer your question, Kim? Uh. Well, I'll keep working on Mason. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. John has a question. Uh, my question involves a lot of assumptions on little knowledge, so it may be incorrect, but I am my question is, how can we get this species so it's not uh, self-destructing? And uh, I'm thinking of how we don't see that we're connected to the environment. We're into our self, uh, self-centered dream and, and greed. And from what I know, um, First of all, that's what meditation is all about. That's why we are here. But it takes a long time. And from what I've heard, uh, we are needing to activate the right side of our brain. The left side of the brain, you know, is just grabbing all our attention. And so I'm wondering, I, I know that this is what we're all doing but it takes so long and I wonder if you know of other ways to activate the right side so that we are more inclined to see how we are tied to everything. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, there's a bit to unpack there. Did you hear me? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I got your full question. Um, Did I guess my question not come across? <laughs> I'm not oh, getting yeah. no, any it, response. I think it, it came across. Let me try to reiterate it to see if I got it, got it right. So you're wondering how we could leverage the right, the, the features of the right side of the brain that seem to be related to a sense of interconnectedness to make us feel more related, which we are, to nature, natural surroundings, and probably each other as well. Is that the question? I think Joan's frozen somehow. Joan's. I think so. <laughs> that was my understanding of the question, so maybe you could okay. take off with that. Sure. Um, so I guess the first thing to address is sort of like, there are a lot of um, sort of rogue theories about very simplistic models of the brain, um, which don't really map to what we yeah, understand. Yes, so that we start, stop thinking just of our. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Oh, it's okay. So, uh, Maybe a better way to, so there actually is some evidence. There's a, there's some evidence that midline structures of the brain. So, uh, you know, structures that run along the divide of the brain, the corpus callosum, um, are related to self-referential processing. And people who have a hard time with rumination, or people who are in a deep state of like mind wandering and just thinking about the, themselves and 
uh, their, their particular memories of themselves through their own first person perspective, uh, they tend to have hyperactivity in these midline structures. And actually people who practice in meditation um, for some time have some deactivation of these structures. And this is especially true when people are practicing uh, compassion related meditation types. Um, what's considered in, in some circles of psychology to be like constructivist families of meditation practice where you're focusing on others and you're using a particular ethical framework. And I'd imagine like a, a meditation involving interconnectedness would certainly fit this family of, of uh, meditation types. And what we see is there's a deactivation of these midline structures, uh, but there's also an activation of uh, regions of the brain that are considered to be relevant for simulating other people's experience. Um, if you're interested in what they're called, I mean, one's called the anterior cingulate cortex. Doesn't really matter <laughs> for the sake of this, but uh, the point being that th there's there are quite a few like rogue theories out there that sort of propose like oh left left versus right brain, or you know brainstem versus everything else. But really, uh, we're still learning so much of this, and I think one of the one of the earliest findings we had um, that the neuroscience of meditation had and one of the most robust findings we still have is this sort of deactivation of midline structures and uh, engagement with other structures related to appraising other people. Now, like totally outside of the scientific context, um, I think of a lot of human behavior in terms of like hierarchical networks. So maybe to better help people feel more interconnected with each other and with nature, that takes more of like macro cultural changes where you have people whose voice get represented in media and in politics and uh, even in science, I suppose, and philosophy uh, who actually orient themselves toward a more compassionate stance of human toward humanity. Um, and I think that these behaviors and these orientations get learned um, from a pretty early age. And that doesn't mean that we can't decondition ourselves and, and learn how to be more compassionate or uh, have a greater, more broad ethical stance toward each other. Um, but trying to hack the brain, if you will, um, I don't know is the most effective way of getting at major change um, for not just yourself, but for like a whole culture. We're not um, going to be able to give people a pill or shock them. Yeah. Or Most likely not. And I don't know if we would want to. So yeah, but a great question. Thank you. Nice, Monica. Hi, everyone. And Mason, thank you for talking to us. Um, it's, it's fascinating. Um, I wanted to know if you would go back and talk about, so you talked about the emotional regulation and the part in the dual model, the reappraisal, and give some more examples of how that's being used. Um, just, yeah, real life, yeah. Example, how it's being used in positive psychological, physiological yeah. ways. It's so wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much. Um, it's been a pleasure. Um, so yeah, there's actually, there's so much work being done on reappraisal. Um, someone you might want to look into is uh, James Gross. And Gross is spelled, as you'd think, G-R-O-S-S. <laughs> -S. Uh, he's at Stanford and he kind of popular, popularized a lot of uh, affective theory and emotion regulation work in the early like 90s. Um, and he sort of proposes a framework of reappraisal of it being an antecedent uh, model of regulation, where if you adopt an orientation toward reappraisal, you're going to uh, try to take on a new perspective for a uh, maybe something that you would normally not like in your environment um, before you actually fully experience your first reaction to it, hmm. which that's one framework for to explain why it might be healthier for you 
Um, you don't let the emotional cascade to happen and uh, induce all sorts of negative physiological reactions to something which could cause health problems down the road. Um, it has been extremely successful uh, in trying to understand where certain people with, with pathologies like generalized anxiety disorder, depression, and PTSD um, fail in their interactions with their environment. So people with those psychopathologies tend to be very bad at reappraising. Um, and if you can train them, then that actually seems to help quite a bit. Although one thing I'm, I'm pretty interested in is uh, what in psychology they call these individual differences. Um, so some people might actually have negative reactions to reappraisal training. Um, I have a friend who, I have a friend who was just diagnosed with cyclothymia, which is, you know, a form of bipolar disorder. Uh, it's sort of typified by these cycles of mania and dissociation. And she's someone who, you know, just from knowing her and her experience with therapy, she, uh, if she engaged in too much reappraisal, that might actually be bad in the sense that it might uh, induce dissociation. Especially if it's something like distal reappraisal, imagining yourself as a very small, you know, object among other objects. Um, so certain types of reappraisal might actually be have negative outcomes for certain types of people. Um, however, what I also find very interesting is while there are some people that are attempting to dissociate different types of reappraisal, that work is still very nascent. Uh, so we still don't know that much about, you know, what are the, the differences between just trying to understand, let's say at the end of the day, uh, you had a bad day and you're like, well, let me just think about how that day fits into my broader week. You know, that might be a form of temporal reappraisal where you sort of like stop your reaction in the moment by embedding it in a, a bigger week. And hopefully you had some good experiences that week and you can feel a little bit better. Um, but we still know the difference between that and like Galileo who might've been like lambasted by the courts of Italy, uh, the Royal court and, you know, looks into his telescope and sees Jupiter and <laughs> uh, is able to imagine human beings being these, this tiny speck of civilization amongst like all this uh, vast space. We don't know how the brain is dissociating those two different experiences. And in fact, um, there's some recent work that's trying to integrate some neuroscience with philosophy of space and time and suggesting that how we appraise space and how we appraise time really isn't that different. Um, it's sort of like we develop these physical theories for space and time and then just sort of map that and try to force it onto our understanding of the brain. But mm -hmm. it seems like our brain isn't necessarily like we don't have neurons specific to time and neurons specific to space. We have our hippocampus and its regions that is constantly tracking our context, which includes time, <laughs> right? So it's tracking how time flows. It's tracking how things change over time, um, which coincides with the space that you're in. So that's a great question. I, uh, I would say look into James Gross and you'll see some really interesting work um, that might help answer that a little bit further. Thank you. So, yeah, Let's take two more questions, Sandra. Caroline is next. Okay. Um, hey, Mason. It's good to hey. see you. Me too. Um, so I have another complicated question. I'm sure. um, I'm working, I'm getting my master's in social work. So my focal point is um, the interaction of early trauma. And then what mm -hmm. I understand from like Bessel van der Kelk or um, Bruce Perry is that you literally, parts of your brain are stunted in their growth. Mm. So what I'm curious is, um, is there an ability for the practice of meditation to actually grow areas that have been stunted due to the early mm. trauma or is it irreversible 
that's part one mm -hmm. and then two it's like then yeah. for somebody that does have early trauma where they're trapped in that inner child quite mm -hmm. often it's like where is the what what are the types of and i don't know you mentioned meta or compassion techniques so mm -hmm. what are the best meditative techniques to kind of help guide them towards working with that inner child part that they keep getting triggered in yeah mm -hmm. so i'll definitely preface this by saying that i don't have much knowledge of developmental psychology um and this is total speculation so especially because it's like a clinical context you know be very take this all with a grain of salt but to answer your first question i definitely think that there are potential avenues for recovery um again case by case case basis uh but uh something like meditation should be able to depending on the, the form of meditation should be able to allow some uh redevelopment of certain processes that might have been hindered or you know developing in an aberrant way due to the trauma so there's one thing that we know um or beginning to understand about traumatic disorders is that uh there tends to be your brain tends to have sort of a, a, a mix-up or an aberrant uh, processing of your context uh, when you have trauma. So in particular, um, when you learn that something's fearful, especially a, a very traumatic experience, that fear memory isn't necessarily specific to where you had the encounter. So the fear memory actually generalizes to many other contexts. But what makes um, recovery from trauma so tricky is that let's say that you were hit by a car and now you're afraid of cars everywhere, right? But you began to learn that cars are safe only when you're, you know, in a residential area like Hyde Park, for example. That, uh, what's called a safety memory, is going to be very specific to that area. So a big part of, uh, at least what, what I know about um, clinical application, clinical research for trauma is trying to learn how we can generalize the safety memory to other contexts. In children, I imagine that, you know, it becomes much more tricky because uh, when you're in a state of like very uh, important development and your safety context is tied to such a particular state when you're young, it's also gonna be confounded by your age, your temporal context, really basic things about learning and memory. So how you begin to learn that, uh, you know, X causes Y and this person uh, means safety and this person means fear. Um, we do know that thing, certain uh, therapies, including uh, some types of mindfulness, at least in adults, actually can help the safety of memory generalized to new contexts but I don't know about whether or not that's true in children. That's probably much more difficult in children. Um, and even then, I, meditation practice with children is also, and you know, even when you're dealing with totally healthy children with no traumatic experiences, no traumatic history, can be tricky also. And you typically wanna start with very simple uh, types of practices. Now, there's some people who'll say like, oh, children are, so good at even like really radical open monitoring and, and metacognition and uh, can engage in these really deep states. But I I'd probably speculate on average, it's still difficult for children to orient their attention. You know, it's something that as your brain develops over time, you become a lot better at being able to reorient your attention, focus on a particular object and which, you know, many models of meditation suggest that you need that, you need this attentional regulation before you can get beyond um, to something like an open, you know, meditative state. Um, so I'm sorry I can't give like a, a better clinical uh, answer to that question. Um, I think it's really interesting though, it's really important, um, something I'm pretty interested in. So if you want to find some relevant literature, <laughs> Yeah. And Charlie sure, Nemeroff, yeah. I think, is doing some yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah, he is. He is. Uh, I work with uh, 
a research assistant who just got onto his early childhood trauma project. So look, look forward to seeing what comes out of that. Yeah. And Jeffrey Newport also at Dell oh, yeah. Med. So thanks, yeah. Jason. Yeah, thank you. Okay, let's do one last question. And we got it. I don't know. Christoph, do you still have a question? Okay. Okay, cool. Good to see you, Mason. You too, Chris. Uh, it's been a while. Yeah, I like your background. Thank you. It's, it's the farm I live on. I've gotten quite comfy here. Uh, <laughs> I was glad to hear what you said about uh, human perception of space and time because uh, space and time are actually one thing. They're really one thing. So it's nice to know that some people are <laughs> have the capacity yeah. to uh, understand them as the one thing that it actually is. Yeah. The, the curious question I have for you, and I don't know if this would take you too far off field from your topic, but when I study what all the physicists tell us, uh, about the nature of reality and the precision with which we can understand everything to the 20th decimal point mm -hmm. that nothing extra is needed for to make all these equations work mm. and then a lot of uh, theorists of the mind come in and say with something like panpsychism mm -hmm. that's such a limited view and don't be so narrow-minded and you know, materialist versus other debate goes on and to me it feels like the very edges of the next revolution potentially or you know the next step and I, i'm curious whether your research has uh whether the, it's at all engaged in that debate or whether you personally have some views on. Yeah, it, I mean, I, I love that question. <clears throat> Honestly, like almost no one in cognitive neuroscience is gonna be engaged in that debate, but <clears throat> there are some like rogue cognitive scientists who are very interested in basic epistemic and metaphysical questions. Um, I'm beginning to meet some of them because um, I'm moving to UCLA. Uh, I'm actually leaving today, <laughs> driving across country starting this afternoon. Um, but so I suppose where that begins to overlap with, with cognitive neuroscience and some of the actual uh, research questions that uh, people like me deal with is uh, there tends to be a culture of reductionism in neuroscience where you might have like someone who's very, very computational Maybe they, um, their training was with rodents or just like single cell cultures and petri dishes. And all they really care about is what someone developed as like a, an assay of neural activity and how that might correlate with like, you know, how rats um, hide behind a corner of a maze as an index of fear. And they tend to, a lot of people tend to just reduce the experience of fear into that behavior. There's actually a very um, lively debate going on right now between uh, Joseph Ledoux, who is at NYU, and Michael Fanslow, who's at UCLA, between uh, whether or not fear should be considered as what's accessible to our consciousness, or if we should distinguish between implicit fear, so all the things that we're not aware of that make us fearful, and uh, fear that we can actually perceive. And I become very interested in this debate for almost practical reasons. Like, of course, I'm interested in the ultimate answer to these questions, but I'm interested in for very practical reasons, because if we take a reductionist perspective, we, we run the risk of ignoring not only the actual experience of people, but how we can actually quantify that experience and measure it. And if we ignore that, then we sort of ignore the entire project of trying to 
so I mentioned earlier, this, this project of collapsing different ontologies, um, correlating you know, a, a neural substrate, neural activity with behavior and with actual experience. The problem with, with doing this research for such a long time has been simply that it's, it's been really difficult to actually measure someone's subjective experience, right? Um, the phenomenologist, which, or phenomenologists, which began in the early 20th century with Edmund Husserl in Germany, and who, who trained Heidegger, and then that led to Maurice Morleau-Ponty, who was a French uh, philosopher of embodiment, um, who's someone I absolutely adore. Almost all of that work that focuses on our direct experience and using experience itself to understand really basic structures of uh, human reality. And when I mean human reality, I mean like embodied reality. Like the fact that as Mar Maurice Marleponte gives us this example of, you know, a blind man using a cane isn't, you know, a blind man, a blind man and the cane as separate entities, separate objects that somehow you can build an equation to uh, in, induce them or embed them into the world. But at some point, the blind man almost becomes his cane. The blind man uses the cane as an extension of himself to interact with the world. Problem is in contemporary neuroscience, at least from what I've experienced in the United States in particular, I think it's a bit different in Europe, honestly, but the United States in particular, because of our history with analytic philosophy and our history with a certain type of epistemology, uh, we ignore so much uh, philosophy that we could draw on to understand how we can integrate and collapse subjective experience with, you know, physical substrates. This is obviously a difficult problem, but we're developing new technologies like machine learning, pattern recognition, natural language processing is a big one for this in particular, um, that could actually help us get to the point where we can correlate. Let's say that uh, we get like, we give hundreds of monks iPhones, right? And every 10 minutes, just like an ideal experiment in my mind, it's like we give them iPhones with an app that uh, beeps every 10 minutes, that uh, when it beeps, they're supposed to write in their app just basically as, as best as they can their experience. Um, and throughout the day, we also track their behavior. So when are they practicing Zazen? When are they just eating? When are they like reading scripture? When are they writing? And we use something like natural language processing to track as best as we can their subjective experience with their behavior. Now, maybe we also have like a physiological monitor that measures their heart rates and other processes while they're uh, also engaged in reporting their subjective experience. Now, there are some clear confounds here. Their experience might change by virtue of them actually reporting it. So that makes, you know, this whole project a bit difficult. But I think that this might seem outside of the debate between like panpsychism and materialism. But I actually, I think it's, they're much more related than we might expect because we're really dealing with like subjective phenomenological properties, which is almost a separate ontology and objective uh, material that we can observe from a third person point of view. I think that's one of the, the clearest spaces that cognitive neuroscience inter, interacts with these ancient questions of epistemology. Um, I don't, I suppose, so I had a friend over the other night who, uh, you know, at 2 a.m. he's sort of like having like a, a mini panic attack and he's like, Mason, I just, I don't know, like there are people who are debating like this particular epistemic framework and this particular epistemic framework, but like nothing seems to be pointing to like what's actually real. And I'm just like, that debate's gonna continue and I'd love to be more a part, more part of it. But I guess right now I'm really interested in how we can how we embody reality and how reality is so perspectival mm -hmm. and there's so many mysteries within that space in itself like the fact that we're even conversing right now on this weird digital platform 
And I can sort of anticipate or read into your question and try to come up with an answer to your question. Like that in itself is a whole strange intersubjective space that we can't really see what's happening all the time. You know what? Um, and it's so. funny because <laughs> I really, I was like, I'm going to do him a favor and ask him a yes and no question. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I can't, I can't say yes or no. The problem. I, <laughs> I think, Chris. I think we need to, um, uh, say thank you, Mason. This was really, yeah. I, I love it. I know you and I have been trying to do this for a long time and yeah. here we got it on the last few hours that you're here. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been an awesome, it's been a pleasure. So it's only one somebody who just Joel was just asking about what is mean implicit memory. I don't know if you can I, I think we're gonna I think we're gonna um wait. Okay. And um yeah. go ahead and do our our chanting and our bowing and um hey, happy trails, Mason. Have a safe Thank you so much. Thanks everybody. It was so nice. Yeah. yeah, it's been awesome time being part of the Sangha, and I'll continue online <laughs> for as long as that is a thing, you know. Good, good. Much yeah. appreciated. Okay. Thanks.